Let's look to our Lord in prayer. So now, Father, you know our needs. You know the issues of the hour. In this extended congregation, there are some whose family units have been, in fact, infected by COVID-19. It's a reality. They know it firsthand. So, Father, I pray that we can learn, gain insight from the wisdom that they possess with regard to this experience. There are others in this extended congregation who have loved ones and friends scattered across this nation that are geographically in the vicinity of where unrests are occurring over these past days. We're praying your hand of protection upon those friends, those family members, those loved ones. Minister at the points of need, we pray. But now, Father, what we want to do is to narrow our focus upon the one who died for our sins. The one we know is Jesus Christ. The one promised from time past. The one who's the promise keeper. And we're asking that you will meet us at our point of need. And for anyone in this live stream, Father, who will later ponder on YouTube, who perhaps have not come to grips with the reality of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, stir that heart, Father. Meet the needs of that intellectually curious mind that is looking for answers to the ultimate questions of life and bring Jesus to the forefront. For all those that need the warmth, the encouragement found in the gospel of Christ, bring it to the heart, now we pray. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Father, no matter where we are right now in this live stream experience, we've come to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of those conversations that is embedded within my mind. It was back in around 2003, and I had the responsibility of introducing a former professor of mine, Dr. D.A. Carson, to an extended gathering of people. Before he would get up to speak, Dr. Carson and I were standing in a foyer. And as we were talking and catching up with each other, a director of Christian education from a church not terribly far from here came up to Dr. Carson and said, I have a question. Now, Don has a way of always fully engaging himself in trying to answer people's questions. And so I watched how he listened carefully as the director of Christian education said, so many people in our congregation have grown up knowing the stories of the Bible, yet they leave and they don't know Christ as their Savior. How do we bridge this gap? 
Now, Dr. Carson gave of his time and offered his perspective and laid out what he calls a plot line from the Older Testament on through the Newer Testament, pulling together everything pertaining to Jesus Christ, where one story after another is fitted on the plot line, what we might call the plot line of redemption, not to be disconnected from one another, but truly connected with one another, where we see a natural flow towards the fulfillment in the, in the ultimate sense of the word found in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The director of Christian education was taking thorough notes, listening to what Dr. Carson was saying, but then it was time for Don to speak, and we headed towards the platform. That vivid conversation still stands out to me. And what I would like to do is to explore this passage with you this morning because the reality is the audience that the Apostle Paul was speaking to (coughs) was an audience that knew the stories. They would know the story of Abraham. They knew the story of Moses in the wilderness. They knew the stories of Saul and David. But the challenge is, the Apostle Paul would have to connect it all together to Jesus. So if I'm speaking this morning to somebody who is taught in Christian education circles, in Awana, in youth group, I'm going to make an appeal occasionally, connect the stories, develop a plot line, create a forward movement where generation after generation, embedded in story after story, moves itself forward towards the ultimate figure in all of history, the ultimate person for you and for me, that person, Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. For it's possible to know the stories, yet not know the Savior. So what I'm going to do with you now is to draw out three significant factors that I see in this portion of Paul's presentation in verse 13 down through verse 25 that help us answer the question, how do I go about talking to somebody, to those who know the Bible stories, but yet have not trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, in other words, the religious unbelieving crowd? What should I bear in mind? Well, the first factor is found in verse 13 through 15. I want you to note with me to begin with what I'll call the unique opportunities that you and I, that we must anticipate. They're going to come. And you're going to have to be prepared to be able to, when that right moment arrives, to be able to address that curious mindset they might be asking the question with regard to those stories they once learned. So what? How does it relate to the unrest of today? How does it relate to this era of COVID-19? How does it relate to me if I'm unemployed or for me if I'm looking for work? I've just graduated from college, but at this point the market doesn't seem to be opening up. Connect the dots for me. This is where you and I have got to be thinking the deeper things of Scripture. Create the plot lines of life. Now, notice how all this begins. 
Notice with me now that it begins in verse 13 with the phrasing, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. Stop right there. Throughout the book of Acts, we have found that the Apostle Paul, previously known as Saul of Tarsus, would find himself playing second fiddle to Barnabas, his name son of encouragement. But when Barnabas went and found the Apostle Paul, brought him to Antioch, recognizing the extraordinary giftedness of this rabbi who would have the equivalent of two doctrines, teaching, expounding, exegeting passages of Scripture, it is very clear that the Apostle Paul had extraordinary, not only teaching skills, but leadership qualities. So is it any wonder then that the physician Luke, who pens the book of Acts, has now begun with the phrase, now Paul and his companions. He doesn't even say Paul and Barnabas, does he? Barnabas in his humility has taken a step back. Barnabas in his graciousness has allowed for Paul to step forward. He sees the giftedness of leadership, and now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos. And you're going to be able to track with me this movement from Paphos. Comes to Perga and Pamphylia. We're in modern-day Turkey. Now, the map, if you have opportunity to look at it, the map is such that you can see the movements where Paul is moving from water to land and makes his way inland, you see. As he makes his way inland... What we see is that he's come across about 200 miles worth of travel by boat, comes to Perga and Pamphylia, and something of significance happens at this moment. What is it? We are told John left them. Now, his full name would be John Mark. Now, the second gospel is the book of Mark. Now, we see at this point, then, if you and I are going to be presenting the gospel and helping people to connect the stories that mean something of significance to them personally, be prepared for what I will call relational disappointments along the way. You might be heavily burdened to see a loved one, friends at work, students in various classes you've been with, Come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But when you are reaching that point where you're hoping to share the gospel, lo and behold, there's a disruption along the way. God can use the disruptions. But you nor I can allow for those disappointments to keep us from our divine appointments. And so now, that loss is not going to hinder Barnabas nor Paul at this point. They're going to have to keep moving forward. But I simply want you to bear in mind as you're thinking about this, that perseverance is going to be needed for the opportunities of life to present themselves in the sharing of gospel and in other matters as well. You persevere despite the relational disappointments that you've experienced over the course of these past years. Paul did. Barnabas did. 
we should too keep on. And so he left them. He returned to Jerusalem. But in verse 14, they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now they would have gone about 100 miles inland, northward, you see. And I want you to be able to grasp the significance of the terrain. Because this would be about 3,600 feet above sea level. This is strenuous. This is difficult. This is challenging. Again, it requires perseverance. But if you are looking for opportunities for impact in your life, you've got to bear in mind that perseverance is needed for opportunities to arise. Don't assume that opportunities will arise when life is easy. Sometimes you're going to have to go through the difficult terrain of life to be able to enlist yourself and invest in the opportunities that God is giving you. If you were to look very carefully at what might appear if you have the opportunity, you're going to see that if you click on to the site, not only is there the map that describes how Paul got there, but within Antioch, Pisidia, there is a 13,000-seat theater, about the size of one of our modern pro hockey team's arenas. Now, if you can imagine that, that is the setting and that Paul is moving towards. This was a Roman colony. And as a Roman colony, they would have been well-connected, the authorities would, to the people on the island of Cyprus. Now, Paul and Barnabas have led someone by the name of Sergio Paulus, the proconsul, the governor, the Roman governor on Cyprus, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Did he then send papers with them, which was very typical in the day and age, in order for one to present himself to the next setting, so that they then could be embraced in the new setting? You see how God paves the way? You see how God takes your past and invests that in the present, so you've got opportunity now to impact the present? Don't let the disappointments or the appointments of the past be disconnected from the realities of what you're experiencing in the present. God, in essence, has brought papers for you to carry the history of your life marked by the grace of Jesus Christ, his shed blood on the cross. Now, what I want you to see with regard to the unique opportunities, that's what we're focused on, that you and I, that we must anticipate, what I want you to be able to see here is you're looking at it very carefully. They have found the best setting. Antioch, Pisidia, Roman colony, endorsements from Sergio Paulus. They have found the best timing. It's the Sabbath. They have positioned themselves there. They went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. 
It's almost like you got your invite to participate in a Zoom conference of sorts. You're able to engage. Now you've got the best setting. You've got the best timing, the Sabbath. You've got the best invite possible. You've got the rulers of the synagogue who have produced the invite. Now it's time to step forward. What are you going to do when opportunity presents itself? Opportunities are to be managed not mismanaged. Who knows whether you've been raised for such a time as this, Mordecai would have asked Esther in the book of Esther. In his autobiography, just as I am, some of us know the story. Billy Graham tells about a conversation he was having with John F. Kennedy shortly after Mr. Kennedy's election. Here's how he describes the scene. On the way back to the Kennedy house, the president-elect stopped the car and turned to me. He's just been elected. He's just been put in office. Listen to the question. Do you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, he asked me. I most certainly do, said Billy Graham. Well, does my church believe it? President Kennedy asked, pertaining to the Roman Catholic Church he belonged to. Mr. Graham said they have it in their creeds. But they don't preach it, he said. They don't tell us much about it. I'd like to know what you think. Graham said, I explained what the Bible said about Christ coming the first time, dying on the cross rising from the dead, then promising that he would come back again. Only then, I said, are we going to have permanent world peace? Think about that in the midst of the riots, by the way, that we've seen in the past hours. Very interesting, said President Kennedy, looking away. Can you almost see it now? We'll have to talk more about that someday, Billy. And he drove on. Several years later, the two met again at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. I had the flu, Graham recalls. And after I gave my short talk, and he gave his, we walked out of the hotel to his car together as was always our custom, the president and I. At the curb, he turned to me. Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd, I'd like to see you for a minute. Mr. President, I've got a fever, I said. Not only am I weak, but I don't want to give you this thing. Couldn't we wait, talk some other time? That was a cold, snowy day, and I was freezing as I stood there without my overcoat. Of course he said graciously. But then the book tells us the two would never meet again. Later that year, President Kennedy was shot, shot dead. And Billy Graham in his book comments, quote, 
his hesitation at the car door, his request haunts me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. What you and I have to ponder are those moments of life that perhaps you nor I can manufacture, but we do need to manage. We don't manufacture our opportunities, but we are called to manage our opportunities. Now, Mr. Graham was gracious, as he always was. He led who knows how many to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, what he would want you and me to ponder at this point is that moments are meant to be managed, invested, not wasted in the lives of people. Are you doing that? Are you managing the opportunities that you and I have got to anticipate? They might come suddenly, they might come unexpectedly, but you've got to be prepared for when the occasion rises. When that happens, where do you begin? Now, you're asking good questions at this point, you see, because where you begin has a lot to do with whom you are speaking. A secularist has their own set of understandings of life. The religionist has his or her sets of understandings of life. Understand who you're talking to. Know your audience. Understand the stories of life. And then, not only do you ponder the unique opportunities that you and I, that we must anticipate, as we see in verse 13 through 15, but now, second of all, you and I have got to be able to note what we'll call the historic events that we must connect in verse 16 through 22. Back to that director of Christian education who was talking to Dr. Carson and said they know the stories. They were raised in Christian education, but many of them still don't know the Savior. What do we do? Now notice that you and I are given opportunities in those so-called spontaneous moments of life that are not manufactured by us, but are to be managed by us. Where do we begin? Back to a typical phrase that I utilize, choose your on-ramp. Figure out how to get on what I will call the conversational highway of life. Where do you get on? Where you get on has a lot to do with whom you speak. Know your audience. Do they know the biblical stories or do they not? That will determine your starting point. What you're going to see is that the Apostle Paul does not start at the cross of Jesus Christ. He goes back in time and creates a plot line that leads to Jesus Christ. 
because these people were not there yet to be able to embrace the cross. So you've got to start with what they already embrace and lead them towards the one whom they need to embrace, Jesus. Develop a plot line for their hearts, souls, and minds. So if you're burdened for somebody right now, figure out the stories. Create the plot line and make your way to the cross. This is what the Apostle Paul is about to do. He anticipates the opportunity. He's persevered through the mountains. He's got there now to the setting of the synagogue. He got the invite. He stands up. Men of Israel. Oh, that will be music to their ears. For you see, they have been scattered from Israel. They are now in what's now known as modern-day Turkey, in their own synagogue. And here's the irony of all ironies. The proclaimer of the gospel was previously the persecutor of the Jewish Christians. And it could be that some of them are there because the Saul of Tarsus phenomena had affected their families, and now they were dispersed and headed northward into what we know as Turkey. And the persecutor of old has become the proclaimer of the now. And they're going to have to ponder transformational grace as this man now presents. But notice that he identifies with them and he identifies them. Know how to identify. Build a bridge into the individual's life story, their heart, the mindset. He has figured out his on-ramp. But not only is he talking to men of Israel, he knows his audience. You can see his eyes sweeping across the synagogue. It goes on to say, and you who fear God, which means Gentiles at this point. So now he's got a mixed audience. Where do you begin? Well, they know the stories. He's about to make the connections. And because they know the stories, his starting point is going to be different here in the synagogue than he would subsequently at Mars Hill in Athens, found in Acts 17. He can start with the scriptures. And so he begins, the God of this people, Israel, chose out fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out. Notice what he's done. He's identified the men of Israel. He's identified those who fear God. And then he's figured out his on-ramp because he knows his audience and says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And you can almost see now, they're nodding their heads. But the choice comes with a price. Fiddler on the roof, Tevea. He looks up into the heavens. He's having a conversation with God. You ever had a conversation with God? And this, this Jew, you see, who is not in the promised land this time, but this Jew looks up to the heavens and says, I know 
I know we are your chosen people. But once in a while, can't you choose someone else? And what is he saying at this point? What he's saying is that our people have been persecuted. Our people have gone through trials. Now, the Apostle Paul recognizes this. He was the persecutor. He is now the proclaimer. Grace has transformed his life. And it can transform the life of the person you are so burdened for, who's living with disconnect. They've disconnected the stories of the Bible. Now they feel disconnected in their course of life, and they feel disconnected from God, and they can't figure out the meaning of life, and where is all this headed, and they're stuck. They're just stuck. Now what you want to do is to give them a plot line for living. And notice what he does. The Apostle Paul begins with Genesis and moves to Exodus. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. He knows his history. He knows the stories. These people will be nodding at this point. He gets our heritage. He is now in Exodus, you see. He's paving the way. He led them out. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. You can see them nodding their heads. He knows our story of wilderness wanderings. My daughter has given me, as a gift, some time past, something to put my passport in. It's it's just a good-looking folder. And what's stamped on it are these words. Not all those who wander are lost. It's taken from Lord of the Rings. It's taken from the words of Gandalf, who wrote a poem that Frodo was to open in the presence, you see, of of Strider, who in reality is the king, Aragorn but he was unaware that he was standing in the midst of the king. Now, what it seems to be the case and what the Apostle Paul is saying is that there was a lot of wandering, but you're not lost. God's tracking you. And if you are ministering to someone with a disconnected story, God's tracking. So the Apostle Paul moves in the plot line of redemption from Genesis through Exodus, but continues on. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and lets Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then look at verse 19. Are you tracking with me? After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. My word. He's got this thing moving forward. He's into Joshua. He's giving evidence of the fact that there's there's forward movement here. This is headed somewhere. You can almost see the people in the synagogue leading forward. Where is this persecutor 
now proclaimer going with this plot line, you see. You want people to lean forward. You want people to try to figure out what's the trajectory. Where is one story after another story that's now being reconnected, taking me personally? They're leaning. They're grappling. They're hungry. And now he's got them in judges. All this took about 450 years. And they're saying, man, that's a long time. And that requires perseverance for them. That requires patience for God. Never disconnect those two. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now we're into the book of Judges. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish. And they're saying, bad move. Saul, king of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. Well, God in his permissive will allowed for that. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 19, the people were told to have been, they're described as refusing to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, we, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. From the Hebrew, here's the idea, in the manner of the other nations. In other words, they wanted a king like the other kings of the other nations. They wanted to fit in. Now God had promised that there would be a king but on his terms, not on their terms. So God breaks in. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. Stop. Pause. You're up to David. You're up to the man who's a man after God's own heart. And Sir Walter Raleigh was led to the block for his execution. In a sarcastic moment, the executioner asked him if he, his head lay right. And we're told that Raleigh answered, it matters little, sir, how the head lies, provided the heart is right. God wanted a man after God's own heart. It was a flooding situation that took place in previous setting that I lived in outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Incredible flood. A writer describes it this way. The revelation of the underground life and structure of a great city like Pittsburgh stood out. Passing along the streets, one looked down into the manholes, the sewers, the trenches, the chambers, the boxes. One was amazed at the depth, the intricacy, and the extent of these, shall we say, catacombs of a modern city. Under normal conditions, well, they're hidden from view. Hidden from view. We don't think about them. Only the excavations and the openings for the repair of the damage wrought by the flood revealed this subterranean world, yet there were lodged and hidden the power lines, the gas, the electricity, telephones, main lines, 
uh, without which the great granite buildings which raise heavenward are but a cold, dark, useless shells, and then put it this way, like a great city, humankind has an underground life. It's not visible. It's not on the surfaces, we know. Yet the hidden person of the heart, as Peter calls him, is the real person. He is indeed the hidden person. Now, God has a way of delving into the hidden person. And he gets into the hidden personness of David and is then able to say, He is a man after my heart who will do my will. And they're nodding their heads. Those are great days, they're saying to themselves. Great stories. But where is he taking us? He didn't start at the cross. That was not his on-ramp. He started with Genesis. He started with the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his on-ramp. And shifted from the local lane into the express lane and moved quickly made his way towards David. But now where is he going with all of this? And likewise, if you know people who know the stories and they have disconnected the stories and disconnected the stories from their lives and they're living disconnected lives, but now they're leaning forward and they're wondering, where are you going with all of this? What are you going to do? What we've said so far is... Note the unique opportunities that you and I, that we must anticipate in 13 through 15. Second, notice the historic events that we must connect in 16 through 22. But now thirdly, out of 23 through 25, note the promised Messiah that we must identify. We've got to connect all this to Jesus. Connect the stories to Jesus connect furthermore the life to Jesus and in a highly disconnected culture. We've even seen it in the last 72 hours. A nation that feels so disconnected and fractured. Make the connections. Jesus breaks in. All of a sudden, he zooms in. He takes them from David to Jesus. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, speaking of David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. I can almost see now Paul pausing because he's such a gifted communicator. And gifted communicators know how to pause. And he pauses. I can see him scanning the audience. He wants that name to settle down into the minds, the hearts, the souls. A Savior. Jesus. As he promised. They're probably looking at one another. And it's straight out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 where God had promised David an eternal kingdom, 
an everlasting kingdom. My word, we know the story of Jesus on that cross where it read, King of the Jews. But isn't he dead? The persecutor is becoming the proclaimer. And for the disconnected, he's going to connect the death of Jesus Christ to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's allowing the plot line to keep moving forward. Okay. They're leaning forward. He's got them up to, up to Jesus. He's dealing with the promise that was given to David. These are the promised people. When Dr. Adniram Judson was laboring in Burma, it took him six years before anybody came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. At the end of three years, he was asked what evidence there was of any form of success. His response was classic. He he replied, as much as there is a God who will fulfill all of his promises. Now, the Apostle Paul has seized the promise, the very word that he will use repeatedly when he speaks in the letter to the Galatians. And where, in fact, is the Apostle Paul positioned right now in that synagogue? within the region of Galatia. These will be the people that eventually he will be sending the letter of Galatians to. And he will continuously remind them of the promise. But now, he gets them to Jesus. As soon as he gets them to Jesus, it's almost as if they're standing at the edge of a cliff. And he's going to have them stand there for a bit. Take in the big picture. It's almost as if then they were going to have to take one step back from that cliff, which is what he does now. And says, before his coming, John, John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. But now notice he said the people of Israel. How did this begin? Men of Israel, where is he now? People of Israel, see how we're bookending? He's keeping them engaged. You're connected to this, not disconnected. Oh, that John the Baptist. They'd heard about him. They knew about him. And in verse 25, and as John was finishing his course, he said and formed the question, who do you suppose that I am? Do you remember when Jesus posed a similar question to his disciples? Who do you say that I am? In particular, to Cephas, Peter. Well, now, John then would answer the question, I am not he. But then for clarification, he crystallizes and he focuses and then goes on to say, but, and then behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. He's talking about Jesus. And now the Apostle Paul has brilliantly allowed them to take one step back, 
get a panoramic view, and then step close to the cliff again and get a new sense of this one that even John the Baptist has been promising. It was 1909. Author James Balfour, former prime minister of England, speaking at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, on the moral values which unite nations. And in his address, he was talking all the various ways in which people can be connected within nations. Common knowledge, business, diplomacy, friendship overcoming ethnic rivalries. Get this. When he was done, a Japanese student studying at the Scottish University got up and asked this question. But Mr. Prime Minister, what about Jesus? Jesus Christ. According to an American professor who was there, you could have heard a pin drop. People, do you realize that when Saul of Tarsus was the persecutor, when Saul of Tarsus was the one who was all in favor of that man by the name of Stephen being put to death, he would have listened to Stephen develop a plot line that began with the Older Testament. And along that plot line, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 17, Stephen spoke of at the time of the promise, when the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham. Where did the Apostle Paul learn the ability to proclaim the plot line that leads to Jesus? Where did he learn the idea of connecting the stories to the cross? He learned it from the one, you see, whom he oversaw the persecution of and eventually the death of. He learned from Stephen. Stephen taught Paul. And the persecutor became the proclaimer. And I can see how big the eyes are getting now as they're seeing how this plot line is beginning to make sense. He's making connections. And so there we are. And Don Carson and I are involved in conversation, and this extraordinarily gifted director of Christian education comes up and asks, what do we do with those who know all the stories but don't know the Savior? And Don begins to develop a plot line of, Redemption, story after story, connected, not disconnected. Generation after generation, connected, not disconnected. And all of this takes itself in such a way there is a forward movement, a trajectory to the one who died on the cross, but then three days later was raised from the dead. Make the connections. Seize the moment. Manage the opportunity. Connect the stories and focus upon Jesus. Father, thanking you now for these moments together. Help us to be able to take the insights that are here, realizing that even the Apostle Paul was able to take insights from a tragic situation 
in the ministry and the message of Stephen, whose life was lost for the sake of the gospel. But the message wasn't lost. The message was found in the life of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul. Help us to connect. Help us to create forward movement. Help us to get people to the cross of Jesus Christ. For three days later, you, our Father, validated Christ's finished work by raising him from the dead. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.